Hello again, everybody. This is Greg Bryant, host of Jazz After Hours on member-supported WBGO. And this is Nate Chenen, editorial director at WBGO. Jazz United is our show. It's a podcast all about what's happening in the music, the conversation within the music, um, and honestly, just what Greg and I are interested in. And uh, almost every episode involves something that the two of us have experienced, either together or or separately. And this one is very special in that regard, because uh, not long ago, Greg and I both attended an historic occasion, the season opening concert of the 2021-2022 season of the Metropolitan Opera, also the very first opera by a Black composer in the 138-year history of the Met. Uh, I am, of course, referring to Terrence Blanchard's Fire Shut Up in My Bones. And man, we've got a lot to say about it. (laughs) We really do. I am still recovering, Um, you know, just tracing back my own roots. Never really thought that I would be at the Metropolitan Opera House. Um, opera is new to me, um, to be quite uh, candid. And seeing this opportunity coming up, um, I just had a myriad of feelings. And then when you reached out and said, hey, man, do you want to talk about this? Do you want to go to this? I was all about it, man. Yeah. Um, folks, I don't know if you can see if you're uh, looking at this on WBGO.org on our post. Uh we got dressed up for this. Uh, you know, it was just that type of occasion, you know. For for a couple of guys uh, w- with faces for jazz radio, uh, I thought we cleaned up pretty nice. Yeah, yeah, man, we did, we did. Um, and when you see, you know, Jason Moran, you know, a few rows down over mm-hmm. here, and John Batiste uh, in one of his custom tuxedos in the lobby. Yeah, man, I, I don't think we were too shabby. We did I don't okay. Think we were too shabby. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what a what an incredible sense of occasion, you know for like nine different reasons right Mm -hmm. um and i think we're we're going to mostly discuss the the cultural historical dimension here and the musical dimension but but let's just say right up front we're still in COVID times yeah (laughs) and here we were you know i mean yeah the met was at capacity um they did a, a a really fine and thorough job of screening you know, we had to produce vaccination records and um, everything was checked. We were masked throughout. But still, you know, to be in a in a hall that seats, you know, 3,800 people mm-hmm. and to have that hall be full, you know, and and during the intermission, you're you're jostling with folks in that lobby. You know, it was it was it was strange. It was. It was. It felt like the before times. Um, both of us have been out, you know, to various venues safely, uh, but small rooms mostly. Right. And not at capacity in many instances. And yeah, besides the mask on my face, um, at the end of the night, man, I had almost forgotten that we were in COVID. Um, it was very surreal and strange. And I think it had a lot to do with with what we saw. Um that uh, libretto, the singing, the playing, the moment really took us out of our present. And, and I think that's the mission of any good, you know, artistry. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to get lost in the narrative. You're supposed to uh, <clears throat> just just go with the story. Yeah. And on that account, um, A++, 
um, man, it was a journey that night. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the story um, and the content of this piece. So let's take a moment to explicate. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is the just the facts portion of our podcast. Uh, Fire Shut Up In My Bones was the title of a memoir by the New York Times columnist Charles M. Blow, uh, who is, uh, I think Greg and I are, are, we are united in our admiration for Mr. Blow and for his, for his work uh, on, the, on the editorial desk uh, and as a commentator on television. Um, and this memoir uh, traces his, um, his childhood and his sort of journey into adulthood uh, in an impoverished circumstance in, in Louisiana. Um, and really the, the central um, event in this story is, uh, it's a tragic one. It's, you know, it's something that happened to him when he was seven years old. Um, he was sexually abused by an older cousin. Um, and it created a lot of, a lot of confusion and a lot of torment and alienation, um, to, to his psyche. Uh, and the, the book is in many ways, it's a record of his processing of that event and, and it's, and the wreckage that it left in his life. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not really something that you would immediately think would be fodder for an operatic treatment. Right. Mm -hmm, right. Um, and yet uh, it produced incredibly powerful results in the mm -hmm. hands uh, of Terrence Blanchard and Cassie Lemons, who is a, um, a filmmaker and actor and, and writer um, mm -hmm. did really marvelous work with, uh, yeah. with Charles's language um, and, and with the, the specifics of the story. Right, right. I think we're having to um, reassess um, certain critical attitudes about uh, forums, you know, such as, you know, what is opera? You know, what is Broadway? Mm -hmm. uh, what is improvisational music? You know, how much do we um, canonize um, our historical uh, triumphs and figures? And how much do we allow uh, artistry in current stories and in present day narratives to influence and become the new language of these art forms. And I would argue um, that there is no dumbing down or playing down to anyone in Fire Shut Up In My Bones. Right. Uh, this is a current story, but its pull and its magnetism, it, it is cross-cultural. It is, it is is a story from an African-American perspective um, that hits on all levels, and I feel like um, just the pure emotion uh, and, and, and thrust of, of the story uh, carries it over to um, the most benign form of critique or criticism about, you know, what is opera? What I saw made me want to experience opera more. Mm -hmm. So as a gateway, as a standalone, um, Props to to Terrence and, and Charles for the story. Yeah, you know we've we've got a lot more to say, but maybe this is a good moment to to hear what little we can hear in this form, um, because um, the, you know it is it is such a musical experience. You know, just just the immersive quality of this work. Um, I regret that we can't you know play 
long excerpts of this piece because because the music is so striking. We're going to talk it about is. it. Yeah. But in the meantime, this will at least give some sense of what is happening uh, musically, um, specifically with with uh, the voice of the the main character, um, Charles, uh, who is played in adulthood um, by Will Lieberman, uh, a baritone. Um, with a with a, a very muscular sound, and with an incredibly expressive physical presence, um, mm-hmm. I thought he was phenomenal. Um, Agreed. And this is a um, this is a, a refrain that comes up a few times um, in the opera as a statement of determination on his part. I don't break, I sway. That encapsulates the African-American experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting that this uh, opera was the first. And I remember when we were walking away uh, from the Met, Nate, I made a comment about um, sub- being subversive. I really feel like a lot of what we saw <laughs> all at once was was not an explicit attempt uh, to shock, but it was an attempt to say, I understand what your traditional ideals are for this medium and this art form. Mm-hmm. Not only do I have the ability to know the rules, but purposefully we're going to choose key moments and break them and introduce you to um moments in the African-American story and culture that this place has never seen before. Um, One of the most overt examples of that uh, occurs a bit later. um, And I want to talk about it a little bit. Well, let me jump in for a second because you're, you're so right there. And I want to just make a quick point. So, you know, the the, the co-directors of this production, James Robinson and Camille A. Brown, Mm -hmm. um, they, they did a, a really a marvelous job with this and their their pedigree at the met is a a previous production of porgy and bess and anyone talking about representation um at the met you know would have to talk about porgy and bess because um that was sort of the 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 other big example they had of you know a, a majority black cast in an opera but, you know, there's an important distinction there because Porgy and Bess was created by the Gershwins, you know. Exactly. Um, and it is a depiction of the African-American experience that cannot help but be at some remove because mm-hmm. it's translated, right? Right. Um, and so when you see a production of that show and you see Bess, You Is My Woman, you know, th- that's that's trying at something, right? Right. 
Um, And I was so struck again and again in fire um, at, at just how, um, how authoritative the, the, the texture and the tone and the delivery and the execution were, um, you know, and I speak as an outsider myself, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when it comes to the African-American experience, but, but a close observer. Right. And, and so Greg, I, I just wanted to w- chime in and say that, that you can tell the difference. You can, you really can. I mean, uh, just what you were saying, you know, the, the Porgy and Bess, you know, situation, you know, no disrespect to Gershwin, you know, but it's kind of an Amos and Andy situation. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the real deal. And again, you know, <laughs> what did Miles Davis say? We learn the rules and then we break them. You know, that's what I saw on that stage. And where I was going with it was essentially um, one of the most attention getting, you know, scenes was the fraternity situation. Mm-hmm. You know, Charles is in college. He's pledging Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity. Um, there is a long montage of, you know, the line dance tradition, the stepping uh, tradition that happens in HBCUs. And at first I was like, oh man, they're telling all our secrets. <laughs> you know, this is a mixed crowd, man. We don't, we don't right. talk about this. We don't do this in front of, you know, uh, uh, white people, just to be honest about it. But no, man, it was very, uh, uh, it was, it was a moment of joy. It was a moment that was unexpected mm-hmm. and rendered with such authenticity and just pure force. It was visceral. Everybody felt something in their body. And there was an at least 60 second standing ovation after just that scene. And I don't even know if people are, you know, versed in the, you know, black American, you know, Greek life tradition. They just knew it was badass. Well, the way that that was, the way that that was not only choreographed and performed, but the way that it was positioned within the show, mm-hmm. um, it was all designed for maximum impact. Yeah, you know, Camille Brown, first of all, clearly knows this tradition. <laughs> sure. um, all of those dancers, you know, it, it was so, it was just pure life force, right? But it also, it opened Act Three, um, mm-hmm. and so between Act Two and Act Three, there was no intermission, but there mm-hmm. was a you know, the curtain fell and there was a, a sort of reset. And so then the curtain rises uh, and you see the, you know, the Greek letters in supersized, you know, uh, rendering at the back of the stage. And then you see the fraternity brothers in their, in their, um, uh, I guess, sweaters, would you call, you know, and, and then, and then we were just, you know, like it was like a rocket ship taking off. Well, in that moment, as I recall, I, I leaned over to you and mm-hmm. I said, hey, bro, mm-hmm. we're at the Metropolitan Opera. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, like This exactly. is happening here. Right exactly. Now, you know, and, and mm-hmm. there were so many moments like that in the in the opera. But that one in particular felt to me almost like a show of dominion. Like, yeah. like not only is it OK that we I'll put it in quotes mm-hmm. that we um, black culture. Mm-hmm. has been allowed into these hallowed halls, you know, 
Like we're not asking for permission. We are, we are taking what's ours. Like this is our house, at least for, Mm -hmm. at least tonight, at least during this production. Like it's not a seat at the table. We own all this. This is Mm -hmm. this, you know, like the, the door has been cracked and we, we are flinging it all the way open. That's what it felt like. I, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. And 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 driving home, uh, I had a thought about you know just that you know how long we African American people have had to wait for the seat at the table. Mm-hmm. But what I hope this does, this is a bit aspirational. What I hope that fire shut up in my bones does is create the appetite for not only um, opera in the African American community, but among African American creatives. And not to wait for a majority institution necessarily uh, to present works. You know, there is 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 always uh, uh, a possibility for an alternative venue. You know, musicians are learning how to do that in COVID. You know, we haven't been able to gather in clubs. You know, they've been closed. We've had to make a way to present our art. I hope this inspires folks to get creative and to get alternative. Because the more we do something and the more we have folks that are representative, you know, of the quality, you know, yeah, we can bust the Mets doors open, but we can also create, you know, an appetite um, for this going forward in some alternative spaces. Those are just some thoughts that I wanted to share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we have to give credit as we're talking about this to the institution that originally commissioned this work and yeah. Terence Blanchard's previous and first opera champion. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about opera St. Louis and uh, jazz St. Louis. And, and uh, you know, I, I discovered that uh, Gene Dobbs Bradford, who's the president and CEO of jazz St. Louis and a, and a really good guy. Uh, he was at the premiere. Um, and I can only imagine what it felt like for him having, you know, having seen the, the development of this work um, and presented it proudly, you know, uh, in St. Louis to, to see it on this, you know, grand stage, but, you know, it, it takes vision, you know, without that, that step in the process, without having it be nurtured and developed by, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, another opera company and, you know, with help from a, a jazz organization, um, you know, th- this, this would not have happened. Uh, and, and so it's like, um, I, 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 it seems unfair to describe it almost like a, um, like an out of town tryout or a farm team or something, you know, but, mm-hmm. but it's undeniable that the Met is the grand big stage, you know, it's, right. it is, it is the, the major league of major leagues. Um, and, and it, it's meaningful that they have already committed to present uh, X the, the groundbreaking opera by Anthony Davis, Mm -hmm. um, in 2023. Uh, you know, that was a piece that, that originally, uh, premiered in uh, New York city opera. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so there's catching up going on here, um, clearly, but it's better late than never. Right. I think we should talk about Terrence though. Sure. Because it's really fascinating to me, um, you know, that that someone who is not known for his operatic work um, gets this opportunity uh, 
and and you know is sort of handed the the controls to to a plane that's already in flight and it turns out he was exactly the person to to you know smoothly handle this mm-hmm. historic moment yeah. um and i wonder what thoughts you have about that mm-hmm. he's the man of the hour uh for many reasons uh for me because i think that he represents with brilliance the idea of what black american music really means he was not searching for a way to insert complexity in his score uh he wanted the music to serve the story and i think there are many composers who would have been um flashier or more awe-grabbing with their uh musical notation or their harmonic choices uh their rhythmic choices but i think for someone like terence who knows how to tell a story with music and who knows how to use music to undergird a story that's there is the perfect candidate for this. Mm-hmm. Um, a few times when I was listening uh, more intently to the music than watching the story, because I wanted to see where is Terrence's footprint? Where is his signature? Are any of his um, licks that we may identify in his composing? Are they there? It was hard to really find those. And I think for good measure, um, He's got a clean slate here and he's in service to the overall you know, a, a agenda here. There were times when, yes, I did understand that Tane Watts was on the drums, mm-hmm. you know, but there were also times where it was like, hey, man, that could be Tane. That could be any other drummer who is in service to this music. The same for, you know, Adam Rogers and Matt Brewer, the explicitly, you know, improvisational musicians that were a part of, you know, the pit orchestra. Um Terrence is, is a genius, man, and he's a genius because he knows how to serve the story. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, I think that he has learned. I mean, well, some of this probably comes down to character, right? He is has never been an egotist, you know, which is which is really something for, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> play with mm-hmm. stereotypes of trumpet players, right? <laughs> the trumpet is out front. It is the alpha horn. Watch out. The trumpet, you know, <laughs> if you're a trumpet player from New Orleans, you got to have mm-hmm. some swagger. It's sure. just, it's just, it's sure. part of the training, you know, it's part of the mm-hmm. expectation. And Terrence has his swagger. He, he, he's second to none when it comes to mm-hmm. um, making an impression with that instrument. But That's there's real. something about him as a person. He is generous, you know, um, he is, he is a, a, a very generous collaborator and, um, I think that he places a great deal of faith in his audience. And then um, he's had this incredible experience working with Spike Lee, yes, who is a master yes. storyteller mm-hmm. and, and who understands character and, you know, understands editing, you know, right. And, and <laughs> right. just imagine, imagine mm-hmm. the, the, the lessons that Terrence has absorbed through that working relationship over the years, you know, working mm-hmm. with Spike on documentaries, working oh, yeah. with him on every kind of feature film in multiple genres, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, so all of that feels just as crucial to the equation here as his musical understanding, you know, which of course is, is incredibly deep and profound. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, it's, it, I, I think you're right that he is the perfect person that would not have been entirely obvious until you started thinking about it, you know, but, but there were, 
there were indications in Terrence's own discography. And, mm-hmm. and I revisited one of those as I was preparing to experience fire. Um, you know, this is a really meaningful piece. It's actually also the, the album that prompted my first extended uh, reporting trip uh, mm-hmm. to profile Terrence um, back mm-hmm. in 2007 when he put out A Tale of God's Will, A Requiem for Katrina um, on Blue Note Records. And this, of course, uh, was a, a, a suite that he put together um, as he was working with Spike um, on When the Levees Broke, A Requiem in Four Acts. And so, you know, you just have to imagine how much emotion went into this this project. Um, but having not heard it in a, a handful of years, I was really struck by the beauty and the majesty and the mastery yeah. um, of this album. Let's hear a bit of the piece titled Waiting Through. Terrence Blanchard from A Tale of God's Will. And man, we've both spent some time uh, with Terrence Blanchard. Uh, You've spent some extended time with him uh, for a New York Times piece. Um, You mentioned his generosity earlier. Uh, Man, can you just tell us a little bit about um, learning him and and him as as a personality? Because I think that's crucial in understanding also what type of composer and why he's the man of the hour here. Well, you know, I will just say that um, he's so industrious, you know, he's, he's someone who really understands how to focus. Um, and he, he has something that I think um, is easy to underestimate, you know, uh, which is the ability to really sort of shift his focus as needed, you know, like mm-hmm. just, just picture, like this is a guy who, who, <laughs> I mean, he just released an album on Blue Note in August. Absence, that's right. You know, uh, mm-hmm. with the E Collective and the and the Turtle Island Quartet, uh, that album is is pretty serious business. Um, yeah. You know, that would be enough on the plate of most people in in one mm-hmm. cycle. And and he yeah. put that out as he was preparing to make a, a historic debut at the Met. You know, and. Um, do the things that he does with Spike. So this is a guy who I feel like multitasking is not the right way to put it, but he, <laughs> no, he, he knows no. how to keep multiple irons in the fire. Yeah. And he's make, Quincy Jonesing, Nate. He, that's what, that's he's doing. what it is. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Yeah. I like that. It's a verb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's Quincy Jonesing. <laughs> um, he has, he has mentored everyone from, you know, Derek Hodge to Kendrick Scott to, sure. Uh, Fabian Almazan, you know, just mm-hmm. all these, all these wonderful musicians who have come through his ranks one way or another, you know, or through um, the the Monk Institute, which is now the Hancock Institute, uh, yeah. where, where he's been involved. Um, he really understands um, what it takes, having been mentored himself by Art Blakey. You know, he, he knows how important that is. 
Art Blakey created leaders, yeah. you know, and different kind of leaders. You know, there's Freddie Hubbard's, there's Wayne Shorter's, but there's also, you know, Terrence Blanchard's. And maybe more than any other jazz messenger, his scope of understanding compositionally of what this Black American tradition is, is the most vast. Because, you know, when I really think about it, you know, all of the prolific composers from the messengers, I'm not so sure that I hear the word opera by their name. Maybe Wayne Shorter. It's worth saying that Absence is, is dedicated to Wayne Shorter, who right. has his own opera premiering later this right. year. True. Um, and I think there's a there's a, a real um, genuine bond there, you know, mm-hmm. uh, between Terrence and Wayne, you know, because yeah. it's all about that scope. It's all about yeah. um, being limitless, you know, mm-hmm. in your imagination and in your creative resources. Um, and clearly Terrence drew a very specific inspiration from Maestro Shorter as mm. he was embarking on this, this phase of his own creative expression. So I wrote about um, Fire Shut Up In My Bones, and in doing so, I, I really tried to communicate how I thought the music was serving the story. Um, okay. I, I tried to talk about certain devices that Terrence used, um, certain languages that he employed. But Greg, you you were sitting right there next to me and you heard mm-hmm. everything I heard. And I, I would love to hear you talk about what made an impression on you um, mm-hmm. in terms of, of the tools of composition. Um, you know, regardless of how how it f- does or doesn't fit into any any preconceived notion about opera, just like right. how how was it working as music? Yeah, I mean, there are these little stories in the music, or these little uh, melodic fragments that I could almost hear on their own. You know, um, on an album, if he were to you know section off you know this part, um, I thought that you know his decision not to um, bring in, you know, a, a, a cascade of, of, of dense harmony, mm-hmm. you know, all the time, yeah. uh, was a really smart choice because again, when you're writing for a singer, uh, you want them to come through, you know, that's the main job, you know, and you think about things like, you know, amplification in a place like that, you know, having a lot of harmony or a lot of rhythm all at once is really going to wipe out, the main voices, yeah. you know, I didn't have to strain to hear the singers over the music. Um, the, they balance themselves, uh, you know, good, clean dynamics. But when he chose to, let's say, busy things up or use that five, four pattern, you know, that he returned to over and over, I never felt that it was gratuitous. I never felt that it was just, you know, out of place or that he was trying to, you know, flex and say, Hey man, I'm a jazz musician <laughs> or whatever that right. is. Um, it's a really uh, awesome, you know, example of, of selflessness, really, you know, and, and I would almost be tempted as a composer instrumentalist to participate, you know, in the ensemble myself, mm-hmm. because, you know, there were a certain uh, amount of times where I'm thinking a trumpet would be the awesome lead voice right here, maybe for this one passage, you know, but it never happened. And after a while, I, you know, I disassociated myself, you know, with that concept and thought about, listen, man, he is trying to 
create the bed for the singer to excel. Mm -hmm. And he did that every time. Yeah. Yeah. There's one thing that he does that some of the reviews of the opera have mentioned, which is he'll have a vocal line that is, um, you know, closely shadowed by Mm -hmm. strings or woodwinds. Um, You know, so the melody sort of moves all together, voice and orchestra. And I thought it was, I thought it was effective and, um, and it didn't feel overbearing. Uh, one thing that's really striking is how natural the the cadences of the language felt. And, you know, that is Cassie Lemons, of course, that's mm. her work as a writer. But, but then Terrence, um, apparently the way that he, that he wrote this music in, in many cases was to speak those words, you know, as he was writing his process involved speaking the language, you know, just like getting the feel for how, how it actually moved, um, where the rhythms would fall. Um, mm-hmm. And that attunement to cadence then mm-hmm. influenced what he did with, with line and, and ultimately harmony and color and everything else. And, and I think that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. When you talk about the music being in service, that is literally what he's doing. You know, he's yeah. saying, well, here is he, like, this is the essential information. And now, mm-hmm. now I need to create a scaffolding and, um, and then, a, and then a supportive foundation. Um, and it's not static. Um, right. It's not inflexible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's supple, but again, it's in service. Exactly. And the singers were challenged. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. they, they did have to, to, to rise to the bar. But again, they're not tripping over their words. They're not trying to impersonate an instrument. <laughs> you right, know, right. It, it's, it's really natural and, and, and they can breathe. Um, that's such a great point that you made there, man. Yeah, he I'm glad to hear that he really took time with those um, those phrases and lines. It makes sense. How about a how about a handful of shout outs? Uh, sure. Think about our experience of this opera. Um, pick anything like who or what. A moment, a scene, a phrase, a performance. Mm-hmm. You know, let, let's do a quick little let, let's let's trade trade some fours here with this. Sure, sure. Um, man, this is a bit somber, but just that whole idea of loneliness. Mm. And yeah. and forced loneliness, um, you know, in the story, this young man is, you know, willing himself to silence because of obvious trauma yeah. and embarrassment. Um, but I think investigating that that vibration and that concept, you know, musically throughout um, in the story, there's this through line that's emotionally, you know, very stirring and really doesn't resolve until the end of the show. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the interesting thing is that it doesn't really resolve, except in the sense that the opera concludes with this with this promise that the story's just beginning. And yeah. and so there's almost a meta-narrative around um knowing that that Charles turns out to be all right. In fact, mm-hmm. turns out to be extraordinary. Um and and then you know this other meta narrative that we all were were privy to in the room, which is like, and here we are, at the Met, making <laughs> yeah. history together. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There was also this recurring idea of um, leaving, you know, for the North, 
Right. You know, because this young African American, you know, is, is having trouble really, you know, finding um, his 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 not his roots, but his 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 like minded, you know, community um, having his um, aspirations and goals potentially be deferred because of his locale. You know, he wants to leave. He wants to get out of there. And this, you know, idealism of what the North represented to him. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I remember feeling, you know, that way, you know, as a teenager, it's like, hey, man, you know, I dig improvisational music. It's a guiding force in my life. Cats aren't really checking for that. You know, I'm the odd man out. I want to go someplace where this is celebrated. You know, I, I had those feelings by way of trying to find arts and trying to get where creative thoughts and creative, you know, ideas were expressed and celebrated. Yeah. Uh, We talked about this after as well. You know, I'm not so sure that in another, you know, 20 years um, that kids will be having that same level of aspiration because as the United States, you know, becomes more politically saturated with different viewpoints everywhere, you know, it's just going to be a matter of, you know, where do you seek your community mm-hmm. where you are? Yeah. But um, in the in the early 80s, you know, early 90s, you know, that was still a thing, man. Yeah. I'm um, trying to get out so you can find uh, your own level or a higher level at that. There's a phrase that that really illuminates that in the opera. Um, and it's one of the more beautiful themes that Terrence uh, composed. Um and it's a, a piece called Peculiar Grace. A boy of peculiar grace that would last and not come till now. Dreams that kept me awake, isolated by strange desires. This idea of um, of someone not only not fitting in, but being kind of destined to mm-hmm. uh, loneliness, to alienation, yeah. um, and then breaking those chains. Um, it's really powerful in, in the course of this opera. Um, and, uh, and it just feels like... Um, it feels like something that was deeply felt by, by the entire creative team, um, as well as all of the performers there. Um, and I wonder whether it's worth thinking about that idea as it pertains to Black achievement in the high culture institutions that have been so slow to, to welcome them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, is, is that something that, that feels relevant here? I think so. Um, you know, I, I think about how oppressive, you know, and constricting, you know, that segregation was legally, you know, until the mid to late 1960s. But I also think about how vibrant, you know, African-American communities were forced to be uh, because they had nowhere else to go, um, economically solvent as they were. Um, now the playing field is wide open, you know, but there is still a large gap between, you know, folks who have a head start and folks who don't. 
And I think that that level of um, ingenuity and entrepreneurialism um, not only should be celebrated, um, but again, um, not to wait for the Met, you know, to open the door. Right. You know, we, we, uh, there, there's an independence uh, that has gone on for quite some time, you know, and I would urge even people listening to this, you know, that may have aspirations or don't know, you know, when they're going to get their break, you know, start now, start now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been inspired by this in many ways, you know, to, to not wait. And, you know, and I think that, again, just celebrating the fact that this happened is amazing. But just thinking about so many people that died with deferred dreams, it's a bit heartbreaking, you yeah. know, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. But not to let that part of the legacy continue, you know, even if it's not on that stage, you know, hopefully this will inspire some folks, you know, to get busy as far as establishing platforms uh, for these expressions to happen. Yeah, that's beautifully put. And I'll, I'll add that Terrence told me, um, you know, he didn't know the the singers in this cast, right? Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't come from this world. But what he said was, now that we know each other, you know, we're going <laughs> to... We're, we're scheming on some things, you know, That's and, great. and this is a good That's moment great. to acknowledge that in addition to Will Lieberman, um, really incredible performances by Latanya Moore as Charles's mother, Billy. Um, what a, what a powerful performance she gives. Um, Angel Blue, who portrays loneliness and destiny, um, mm-hmm. and a young woman named Greta, who is a, a love interest, um, there's a reason that she plays those three different characters, um, but her her vocal performance is is clearly differentiated, you know. And yeah. and she, what an incredible, yeah, what an incredible voice, what an incredible presence. And um, there, you know, there, I mean, really, everyone in this cast is incredible. But I also feel like we have to acknowledge that the young Charles, Charles Baby, as yeah. he's called, is played by a kid with some some <laughs> some real fortitude, serious chops, yeah. His, his name is Walter Russell III, and uh, I believe he's done some work on Broadway in The Lion King. Um, I, I think he's a young Instagram influencer as well. Okay. But, uh, but you know, um, just imagine the pressure, right? Uh, oh, man. And, and he was just, he was, he was dynamite. He was, he was great. You know, hats off to everyone involved in this production, honestly. Um Greg and I felt, and we, we said at the time in, in the hall that it was just like everybody just rising to an incredible level of, of excellence, mm-hmm. um, and working together, you know, yeah. um, yeah. it was, it was really quite something. Man, we really enjoyed our time at the Met, uh, hanging together, um, and that's probably a good time to uh, talk about more of what we like in uh, this segment of This I Dig. That's right. Choice picks of what we've been checking out musically or otherwise. Uh, Nate, I'm going to pass the baton to you this week. Uh, what have you been investigating, my friend? Well, this was inspired um, partly by our, our experience in a, in a kind of a funny, crooked way. Um, mm-hmm. After I uh, filed my review of Fire Shut Up in My Bones, um, I got on the train and started to head home. And I finally had time to check out 
something that was written and produced by our producer, Trevor Smith. Um, and it is a profile of Jeff Tane Watts. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yes. That ran on Jazz Night in America. Mm-hmm. Um, it's titled Sketches of Tane, Music and Stories from drummer Jeff Tane Watts. And um, at its centerpiece is a, a, a hang in Easton, Pennsylvania. Um, Trevor and Jazz Night host Christian McBride went out and and threw down with Tane, uh, you know, did some crate digging, um, drank some wine and told some really good stories, including some some real sort of deep cuts uh, that that date back to the, you know, the Winton Marsalis uh, quintet of the early to mid 80s. Um, So, man, it's just a really it's a fun listen, especially, you know, if like me, you have have lived with the sound of of Jeff Tane Watts, you know, for these last, you know, 35 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. But didn't always know, you know, where the inspiration was coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So hats off to Trevor. Um, we will link to that show on our show page. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a, a nice way to sort of keep my high going after uh, after leaving the opera. Yeah, man. Hearing Tane uh, describe his uh, <laughs> stories behind the creation of uh, the arrangement of Autumn Leaves yeah. on Standard Time, Volume yep. 1, and uh, just the fictitious story of Vaudeville, uh, his uh, swirling composition, uh, that's alone worth the price of admission. Folks, definitely uh, check that out. Uh, sketches of Tane on Jazz Night in America. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit of a different direction. Um, after our hang at the Met, uh, we had another hang. And man, um, I don't know if I'm a foodie, um, but I have aspirations to become one because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> man, it was on at Guantanamera. I want to shout out Guantanamera Restaurant. Yeah, um, It's a, a great uh, a traditional Cuban cuisine uh, in a fun, you know, vibrant atmosphere. Uh, we ate safely outdoors, and the music inside, as well as what was on our plates, was just a smorgasbord of vibrance. It was the great way to cap things off. So I want to shout out Guantanamera Restaurant in NYC on this I dig. Mm. Oh, that was. I want to have. Uh, I want to have some more of that. We might have to schedule a sequel. That might be the new spot. Yeah. Well, we we want to congratulate uh, Terrence Blanchard. And his entire team, everyone involved in Fire Shut Up in My Bones, um, truly inspiring, um, truly historic. And we are both grateful that we uh, got to witness that moment and, and talk about it here. We also want to thank you for being here, for joining us on Jazz United. As always, uh, we hope that you will subscribe if you haven't yet. We hope you'll tell your friends about the show. Um, rate us if you feel like it, uh, and, um, you know, keep it right here because we've got, we've got more good stuff coming right around Mm. the corner, um, from WBGO studios from jazz United. Um, so this is Nate Chenen signing off, uh, for myself and Greg Bryant. Um, thank you so much and, uh, keep it moving. And folks, also, we want you to give uh, to member-supported WBGO. If you have not yet, 
uh, major contribution. Uh, we just had a very successful fall fundraiser 2021, but it's not too late. Um, your dollars make Jazz United possible. So if you have a few of them uh, or lots of them, if you love our show, um, if you don't dig our show, the important thing is that you contribute to member support at WBGO at WBGO.org slash support. If you want to reach out to uh, Nate and I, uh, we're on Twitter. Nate is at Nate Chenin. Mine is at GB underscore Watchman. Uh, we love hearing from you. We love hearing your thoughts about the show. Again, our producer is Trevor Smith. Uh, our theme song is written by Newark's own Wayne Shorter, performed by Newark's own Woody Shaw. The song's called United. Again, Nate Chenin and Greg Bryant for Jazz United from WBGO Studios. Thanks so much. Take care. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org/studios.